welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Hello, and welcome to Pod Ipsa Locator, the podcast of the Connecticut Trial Lawyers Association. My name is Mike Walsh, and I'm here with my co-host, John Kennedy, and we have a really exciting guest for you today. John, let me turn it over to you. Yes, today we have a, a very special guest, Jessica Snyder, and she is a justice correspondent at CNN. I'm going to talk a little bit about her background because it's kind of interesting. I will start off by saying that she owes a lot of her current success to Dave Maloney, who's the husband of Joan Maloney, our executive director. Apparently, he was her mentor in high school. Jessica's a graduate of BC. Uh, After BC, she went to work in television in various spots as a reporter, a producer, and an anchor in Boston and Albany, and even here in New Haven. She then made the mistake of changing careers and going to UConn Law School, which is the alma mater of our our two hosts here today. She probably got much better grades than Walsh, I'm sure of that. And uh, Jessica then did one terrible thing in her life. She became a defense lawyer for civil cases. And since this is a plaintiff show, I expect her to be grilled on that extensively today. But she was then smart enough to go back into television. She was working, she worked in Boston and other places. She was present at the Boston Marathon bombing and kind of launched her career. She's covered, then worked for CBS and covered many stories, including the Eaton Pats trial and other investigatory subjects. She currently works at CNN. I think you went to work there in 2016. Am I right about that, Jessica? You are. She works as a justice correspondent, and her appearance here today is very timely because she's covering things like the Capitol insurrection, arrests, the impeachment trial, and we're going to ask her about some of the things that were in the news just this morning. I uh, want to thank you, Jessica, for being here today and ask you, how did you get to this place and what's it like to be a CNN justice correspondent? Well, John, I think you actually laid it out quite well, so we can end the podcast right here. (laughs) You covered everything. We're not letting Um, you off that easy, Jessica. (laughs) It has been a winding road, but it has been an enjoyable road beginning in Manchester, Connecticut, where I uh, really honed my television skills at MHS TV News. And yes, admired Dave Maloney when he was a history teacher there at MHS. It has been quite an experience. And the greatest thing about all of this is if you had asked me 10 years ago, what was my dream job? This is it, justice correspondent. I said those words probably 10 years ago, and here I am. I'm working at CNN. I've been here for almost five years now, and it has been, as you can imagine in the past five years, a wild ride. I loved my time at UConn Law. I always had an interest in law beginning in college when I went to Boston University. Everyone says BC. Well, I'm sorry. I I, I read that wrong. I think you're, is your bio incorrect? I got to check that. No worries. Everybody mixes them up, but they are, uh, people know in Boston quite different. But yeah, I was at BU and I had a, I had a love of law, but I had probably more of a love of journalism and television news and telling stories in the television medium. So I went down the reporting path. I had the LSAT in my back pocket. And when it became clear that television was a crazy business, that you couldn't always uh, determine your future all on your own, it's quite a subjective business, as you can imagine, I decided that because I had a love of learning and a love of the law, I would go to law school at night, I would anchor weekend mornings at WFSB Channel 3 while reporting during the week at 3.30 in the morning, I might add, and then going to law school at night. 
And I did that and I finished up and I said, you know, I still love television, but maybe I'd love being a lawyer. And hey guys, maybe it was because I didn't go on the plaintiff side of things, but I did not love being a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> it was a tough year to graduate in 2010. It was the height, or at least in the recession. And there weren't a lot of opportunities, especially because I really wanted to work in New York City. So I did go to work for two law firms that did defense work, insurance coverage, defense, product liability. And it's not that I, I, I didn't totally hate it, but I think that my love of journalism was just so much more powerful that I really missed it. And luckily I was able to find a way to get back into TV news. I worked at WCBS. It was definitely a chance, uh, taking a big chance. I remember the news director said, you have a solid steady job as a lawyer. Why would you wanna come back into this crazy world of television? <laughs> but I knew, I knew it was a risk I had to take because again, my passion is so strong for journalism. And turns out it was a risky move, but it was the best move I could have made. And yeah, I got some great experience in New York City, the center of the world, if you will, when it comes to news and got to spend every night for four years running around New York City and New Jersey and sometimes Connecticut reporting on incredible, interesting things. And now here I am really using my law degree in a way I couldn't have imagined. The past four years of the Trump administration probably gave me more knowledge than I ever got at UConn Law. And no offense to UConn Law, but man, were the past four years a lesson in constitutional law oh. and history and civil, you know, just everything with civics and policy. And it's been amazing. So, but I'm, I'm happy to be talking to you guys because Connecticut is close to my heart. And even though it's six hours away by car right now, I still love it and try to get back there when I can. Oh, that's great, Jessica. I want to pick up on that theme about constitutional law and talk about the impeachment. As you know, right now we're starting impeachment 2.0, as you termed it. <laughs> and I have to wonder, it seems like the result is kind of preordained. I mean, we know what's going to happen. So is there any off-ramp? I mean, do you see any censure down coming down the line to replace the impeachment or anything of that nature? Do you think we're really going to go through this? And what do you think will be accomplished at the end of the day? You know, it's a really good question because in these Trump times or now post-Trump times, it's funny how short our memories, our collective memories are. And because so much happens in any given day, in any given hour, doesn't it feel like January 20th, and, and for that matter, January 6th, that almost feels like a million years ago already. So the problem is Democrats, this is their second impeachment trial. And yet again, they're having difficulty seizing on the public's perception when it comes to this. And because they've delayed, maybe through no fault of their own, and it is no fault of their own because it was the Republican decision, but decided to delay this impeachment trial to the second week in February when all of this unfolded January 6th and then Trump left office January 20th, it is going to be very difficult. And I think, like you said, sort of preordained that they will not be able to convict the former president here. And they're intending to begin this trial on February 9th, but it does not appear they have to get 17 Republicans on their side. That in itself was a high hurdle. And now yeah. given how much time has elapsed, it doesn't seem at all possible. So you mentioned a censure. And I know that that was 
something that had been discussed as maybe replacing an impeachment trial, perhaps after the trial, and we still don't know if there will be witnesses, we still don't know how long this trial will last, maybe censure is something that can happen. But again, as the days, minutes, hours go by, momentum has slowed considerably. And it's unclear if any Republicans at this point would even sponsor or back censure, yeah. especially yeah. since there's so much else going on in Congress, you know, as right. as happens. There's a, there's a flood of things happening every day. It's hard to capitalize on any one thing and really gain hold of it and try to make it happen. Yeah, I was watching your network last night and I, be, I think it was last night. That's a plug for your network, by the way. But, uh, but I, I think I saw John Kasich on and he was discussing that he and Susan Collins had come up with kind of a compromise idea for a censure. But apparently that was that fell on deaf ears right away. But I kind of have a, a slightly different question. And that is in watching those shows, there's a big difference between what you do, which is hard news and what I'm going to call the entertainment news or the opinion news. One of the problems I, I see is that those things have started to kind of blend together. And as you point out in the 24-hour news cycle, things get lost that happened a week ago. And how do we how do we get back to evaluating things in terms of whether they're factually true or not factually true? John, that is the zillion dollar question. I don't know. Many things that you addressed in that question. First of all, I want people to know I'm a journalist. I don't take a stance. And when I'm on CNN, and when many, most of my colleagues are on CNN, we don't have an opinion. We are there to, to represent the facts and to help the public understand what's happening. I've had people say to me, oh, you work for CNN, you must be a liberal. Yeah. Well, truth be told, I'm a registered independent. And I actually think that my training as a lawyer has always helped me see both sides. And these networks nowadays, it is difficult to really differentiate or draw the line between the opinion people and then the straight news people. But I do want people to know that most of CNN is filled with straight journalists where we don't present any sort of opinion. Right. The problem is there is so much media out there. How do you get people to focus on the facts? How do you get people to understand the difference between opinion and fact? And that is a constant struggle. And it's made even more difficult by the fact that there is just this proliferation of media, the yeah. wide range of media. And you can go online and most people get their news online these days. And you can just Google something and a million options come up. It's very important to look at the source. And a lot of people don't understand that just because something's on the internet doesn't always mean it's true. At CNN, I can't tell you, we go through incredible vetting. We have an entire team of lawyers, of people who look at standards. It's called The Row. And anytime I want to put anything on television or publish anything on our website, it undergoes a very lengthy vetting process, which I find it bogs us down. It's difficult. It's frustrating because we have something and we want to go with it, but we have to make sure that it is factually sound and that it presents all the sides. So I don't think a lot of people realize that. I don't know how we get back to a point where people better understand the difference between opinion and fact because it has been so blurred. And unfortunately, the opinion side of things that's what people, they gravitate toward. Yes. And they want to hear opinions that resonate with their own opinion, which is why Fox News had such incredible ratings during the Trump era, because they were very enthusiastic about President Trump and they wanted to hear their views 
validated. It's interesting that the ratings for Fox News have kind of gone down since Trump left office, but it, it's difficult because we no longer live in this world where we only have limited news options readily available. And we have so many options, whether it's on your cable system, whether it's on your computer, it's difficult to make people really understand what the facts are. And people's attention span are much shorter these days. There is so much going on that it's hard. You know, it's my job to tune into the news and I get exhausted by it. I get exhausted yeah. by the constant flood of information. I often think on a day off when I'm just driving through the streets or picking up my son and I don't pay attention to the minute by minute developments. I think, how do normal people stay up on the news? It's my job to stay up on the news. And sometimes I have trouble. <laughs> so yeah. it's, and I just know, as, it's, as an aside, not to name names, but what you're talking about in terms of real news versus not real news. And I'm not going to use that other term. <laughs> but, you know, just this morning, there's this lawsuit against certain opinion makers over at that other network, <laughs> alleging that they did not have things factually correct. And so Mike Walsh wanted to get a piece of that case because he's. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe it's up to plaintiff's lawyers to straighten this thing out. I don't know. I'm sorry. John's referring to the defamation lawsuit. Yeah. A lot of people, for example, the people that created the voting machines, Dominion and things like that. And, you know, I think there's some validity to those cases. I mean, that's, you know, classic defamation and it had a monetary effect. You know, what scares me, Jessica, is I'm not really that worried that Marjorie Taylor Greene is in Congress because, you know, they've stripped her of the, you know, committee assignments and she won't be able to too much do too much damage there. What really scares me is that she got elected to Congress. I mean, you know, that's scary. That there's and, and to talk about, you know, these news outlets on the internet that we don't even know people are watching. And it's, I mean, there are people out there that have really just become brainwashed, if you will. And they're so disassociated from the fact. Well, and, and you know, a lot of the problem here that may, who knows, it may be ag- addressed uh, as we move forward in Congress, because they've, they've kind of talked about this in previous Congresses in the past four years they have anyway. So how social media plays into this, Mm -hmm. because if you click on something on social media, and then the algorithm gets the indication that you're interested in this, your your media feed will be filled with this sort of thing. So it kind of, um, it's a domino effect of this misinformation. You know, it's tempting to look on your social media feed and just believe everything you see. And if you're not exposed to a wide range of news, you might not know because it looks so convincing. And, you know, I know how to differentiate, but I can see how people get sucked into, wow, that conspiracy theory, that sounds like that could be, maybe, maybe it could be. And a lot of these people, they buy into it. And then these officials, they exploit it and then they get elected. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a two-part question. I'm going to act like a reporter here. I got a two-part question. Okay. (laughs) Um, Got it. First of all, you cover justice. And I heard the other day that right now in justice, the biggest investigation since 9-11 is going on into the riot and the causes of the riot. And the first part of the question is how far, how deep does that riot go? Were there any anybody in Congress that was helping with the planning and has any evidence come out on that? And my second question is John Durham. Tell me what you think of John Durham, because, you know, he's a local boy. We all yes. know and like John Durham. He's from Connecticut. He was highly <laughs> respected. And we'd be interested in your views on John Durham. So sure either thing. one, address whichever you prefer or neither so if you address- don't want to address either of them. <laughs> 
let me address the broader topic first, because I think John Durham's still a little bit of a mystery. Uh, maybe not as much to you guys who live and work in Connecticut currently, but to many of us in Washington, he's a little bit still of a mystery and continues to be. So I'll start with the January 6th insurrection and the investigation. And Mike, you're exactly right that the FBI and law enforcement sources have told us that this is in fact the biggest and most wide ranging investigation since September 11th. And it makes sense because people from all over the country converged here on Washington on January 6th and in the days leading up to it. And now FBI agents from the 50 plus field offices across the country have to go out and find those people. They have now charged, our latest count was more than 180 defendants at this point who have been wow. charged federally. Wow. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. And what law enforcement and the acting U.S. attorney here in Washington has told us is that was sort of the low-hanging fruit. Those were the people who had posted on social media, who had talked about their involvement on social media, who had maybe boasted about it to friends who then turned them in. In one case, a man's ex-wife had turned him in because oh, of what he had boy. posted on social media. And then also what they had told local media, the man who, Jacob Chansley, he was the man who was putting his feet up on a desk in Nancy Pelosi's office and then wrote a nasty note to her. He told local media that he did that. So all of... <laughs> Yeah. So all of these charges that have come forth so far have been related to people who didn't hide the fact that they were somehow involved in the insurrection on January 6th. But what we're seeing, and in the past probably week that we've been getting word of, is that the FBI has has been raiding people's homes who maybe instigated some of this violence. I reported the other day on the fact that they raided two homes in Orange County, California. These were men who they had held pro-Trump rallies. I think at the Supreme Court or near the Supreme Court the day before the insurrection. Right. I saw that report. Yeah. Right. And they haven't been arrested. They haven't been charged. But the fact that the FBI has obtained search warrants for their homes indicates that they're now looking, they're going to the next phase of this investigation where we might not hear any developments that are happening in as rapid succession as we have been for, for if you will, the easy arrests. These are going to be more long-term investigations where they have to build up a lot more evidence before they charge these people because these will likely be conspiracy charges. We've seen a few conspiracy charges when it comes to the Proud Boys members and I believe Oath Keepers as well. But, you know, they're talking about seditious conspiracy charges. These are hefty charges that they have to work, they have to build toward because so far the charges we've been seeing are disorderly conduct, disrupting an official procedure in Congress, violent entry. So those are a little bit easier and maybe don't carry as much weight as some of these heftier charges. So there's going to be a lot to come. And I think we're going to be covering this for quite some time. And law enforcement has made clear they are not going easy on any of these people. And they are very focused on this investigation. It leads to the question, will any officials be looked at, charged, indicted for inciting this violence? That's something that the acting U.S. attorney here in Washington, he sort of indicated that that was not off the table. Then they sort of backed off. That they backed it off. off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And but they have said ever since they are looking at any and all actors. So it, it's not likely or at, at least not likely anytime soon 
but it's possible. It's interesting you say that. Last night, there was someone on who was talking about the idea of domestic terrorism, a new statute for domestic terrorism, which I think is a little bit problematic because people who are, that could be used as a, as a sword against legitimate groups as well. But, you know, they've also been talking about felony murder charges because mm-hmm. people actually lost their lives. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you know, yeah. so, you know, there are some serious charges that could potentially be out there. I'm also wondering whether you've heard anything about, and this, because we're lawyers, we ask these questions about any civil cases that might arise out of this, particularly against people who, for example, are, are alleged to have incited the event. You know, and I, I'm not going to name names, but maybe the president's lawyer and others who spoke and said things. I mean, is, have you heard anything about any civil claims? Uh, I will. I, I'm, I'm hesitating here. I've been hearing rumblings. And at this point, that's all I can say. Stay tuned. <laughs> Something might be happening. Yeah, I would think that that might happen. Yeah. And and I want to change directions and then I'll let Mike ask a question because we kind of try to alternate. But all this is in my head. One of the things that a lot of the people who breached the Capitol and entered the Capitol, they seem to have a vengeance for the media. And the media has a little bit become a target. You know, used to be reporting on these events. Now, in some ways, they've become the target of these events. And I, I read that somebody scrawled the murder the media slogan in some of the doors, maybe Nancy Pelosi's door and others. What's it like to be a member of the media and now have to be worried about being the target of uh, protesters? Well, let me first start off by saying it's extremely unfortunate that we people who look to find truth and who disseminate facts try to let people know what's going on, the fact that we are targets. But I will also say that we are a hearty bunch of journalists. And just by mere fact that we are journalists, I don't take anything to heart. Luckily, I I have very thick skin. And I think most of my colleagues do. This is not anything new. I covered many Trump rallies in 2016. I was on the campaign trail everywhere from Wayne, Indiana, to North Carolina, to Diamonddale, Michigan. Glamorous job. Glamorous. (laughs) People think it's glamorous. Good restaurants. Yeah, when you're living out of a suitcase and the only thing you can find is um, maybe a Chick-fil-A after the rally because that's the only thing that's open. It's not so glamorous. But I was the target of nasty words. I distinctly remember at one rally in Warren, Michigan, someone, I I went up to them and just said, hey, I want to chat with you. Tell me why you're here. What do you think? And he basically said, watch out, you might get shot. And I mean, you know, and I then I turned my back and walked away. We We've been getting these sort of threats for a long time. However, it's become much more cute in recent weeks. I was not out on January 6th, but many of my colleagues were because obviously we knew that there was this rally that was headlined by President, then President Trump. And so we knew that there was the possibility it could get violent. We did not anticipate how violent it would become, but it's difficult. And I think that charges are being filed or have been against these people who either targeted the media or actually, I think in some cases may have assaulted members of the media. They destroyed equipment, they destroyed cameras. So charges have definitely been filed and it's not fun in Washington right now as a journalist. And that's, that's to put it lightly. Every day when I come to CNN now, they have put barricades all around our building because our building wow. is probably like a half a mile from the Capitol. We had a bomb sniffing dog that we would have to stop our cars. We have a, a barrier up now before we pull in the garage. It, it, it's wow. very fortified and it's very unfortunate that 
we used to live pretty, pretty easily here in Washington. I would go out and walk around the Capitol my entire three months on maternity leave about a year ago. And it was beautiful. And now it's, it's disappointing that it's been locked yeah. down. It, it's Sad. tough. It's tough for everybody, not just members of the media. How do one, Jessica, just kind of a softball question. How do reporters like you get stories? Like, I know you cover justice. Is it just kind of hanging out in the halls and talking to people? Or I would assume justice would be a little bit harder than like the Capitol where you can yes. go in and talk. I mean, justice, I think you always think FBI agents and, you know, those guys I don't imagine are too talkative. How do you, uh, <laughs> how do you like get your stories and how do you interact and learn things? So it runs the gamut. And I will say I don't cover the Congress per se. I mean, I do when it relates to matters of the legal world or justice, but my colleagues on Capitol Hill, it's amazing the access they have. They just stand around and wait outside doors and talk directly to these members of Congress. So that is amazing, but it's also a very tough job because you always have to be on your toes and be worried that you're going to miss something if you sit down for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't do that. So here's the way that we get we get our news and it's it runs the gamut. I work the phones, I call people, and I've been here in Washington for four years. Okay. And you gain a little bit month by month, year by year. It's tough when you first get here to Washington because people are, reporters in particular, are so established here that they have a lot of their sources already. And then of course, when you change administrations, all your sources that you had are now on the outs and you've got yeah. to talk to all new people, which is interesting now that Biden's in office because a lot of his people are from the Obama administration. Right, right. I was not here during the Obama administration. Okay. I was still working in New York City. So I'm calling up a lot of these people being like, hi, yeah, so you know my colleagues because they worked here, yeah. you know, <laughs> 2012 or whatever year it was. I've been here, hi, but I know that you're, you know, we're all new to this new administration. So, you know, it's, it's working the phones. It is in the hallways. In the Justice yeah. Department, we would, you know, there's a press room and then the, the press office is just down the hall. So you would kind of walk in the hallway. And then the cool thing was the attorney general and deputy attorney general, their offices are on the fourth and fifth floor, whereas the press office is on the first floor. But occasionally you'd see them right outside in the courtyard where their cars would be waiting. You'd run into other assistant attorney general officials and you'd just get to talk to them. And you know, it's pretty great that you can, you do have that access. It's not as readily available as Congress, but let me tell you, the FBI, they are, uh, they are a vault. <laughs> yeah. It is so tough to get information from the FBI. I can imagine. They're, oh my goodness. I mean, Chris Ray, he is very limited in what he says. And that has, I think, been very strategic, at least during the Trump administration. Yeah. But they are so disciplined over there and they they won't release much. And it's difficult to get a lot out of them, which I guess you rely on information from the Department of Justice on that end. Yeah. But I'll, I have to give it to the FBI. They are incredibly disciplined and they don't let much come out that they don't intend to get out. Which is a good thing. Yes, I, I think in the, not in my world, but yes, yeah. it is a good thing. <laughs> It, it seems like in in uh, in your job you have an endless source of material. I mean, every morning there's some new event, and and we always have the, the last administration being investigated by the current administration. And we, it seems like there's always something to talk about. One thing I wondered about was there was a story a couple of weeks ago about President Trump trying to pressure the attorney general, the who filled in, for, I forget, who's the, the acting attorney general, yeah, the Jeff acting Rosen. attorney general. Yep. 
Is there going to be an investigation of that, or are you looking into that mm -hmm. issue? Yeah, so we've learned that the Inspector General for the Department of Justice is looking into that. And what prompted that investigation was some good old-fashioned reporting from the New York Times. They came out with a series of stories, I think on a Friday night was the first one, and then over the weekend they followed it up. But their reporting was incredible. And it shows that, you know, that reporter, Katie Benner, she has been a longtime Justice Department reporter and she, you know, she hangs out in the hallways and people, they're a lot more likely to talk to you if you're from a print outlet. And then obviously with the reputation of somewhere like the New York Times or the Washington Post, a lot of those outlets get the stories first because they are such venerable institutions here in Washington. CNN gets a lot of firsts too, but that New York Times reporting was really detailed. It was attributed to... I want to see, say at least half a dozen former Justice Department officials basically saying that Trump took on one of one of I believe it was a, an assistant attorney general right. for one of the divisions. And he sort of plotted with him yeah. to overthrow the acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, because Rosen wouldn't do what Trump wanted. And it was very detailed. And then a day or two after that, the inspector general, which is very tight lipped, you barely get any information out of them. They said, we are looking into this. And so it was a big enough deal. We probably won't hear a lot of details come out because they too are very tight lipped, but it is something that's being investigated is how much, how much the former president tried to manipulate these institutions, including in his final days, the department of justice. Yeah, scary. And it was kind of the head of the civil division or something. I think a, a Green, Attorney Green, was going to take over. Yes. Yeah, just kind of. He found someone who would go along and invalidate yeah. the election. Yeah, it was it was Jeffrey Clark. Jeffrey and Clark he had me. previously been the head, or he sorry, he was the head of the Environmental and Natural Natural Resources Division, but then he had been also shifted over to the civil division, I believe. And he was actually overseeing two divisions, which in and of itself is rare, but maybe not yeah. for the end of administration. So yeah, the president yeah. kind of found an ally in him. Yeah, exactly. And was yeah. trying to exploit that. <laughs> okay, Interesting. so Jessica, you run marathons, you've got a <laughs> two-year-old and yep. you're always on TV. How do you do it? Oh like, God. where do you, I mean, I go home and sit in my chair, eat dinner and go to sleep. How do you find the time to do all that? Well. I've only run one marathon, New okay. York City. And I, unfortunately, I will never run another one because I just realized my body isn't yeah, built for I can marathons. <laughs> right? Like yeah. and, and my and my son, he just turned one yesterday. Oh, happy congratulations. Thank you. But here's the thing. I kind of think it's like anything. And looking back to when I was 25 years old and decided to go to law school at night and then work the 3:30 a.m. reporting shift. I look back and I'm like, how the heck did, how I, did do I do that, that? for four years? You know, <laughs> but I, I think it's like anything, you just figure out a way to make it work. And, you know, I'll tell you like, TV life, it isn't glamorous. You don't make millions of dollars like people might think. We send my son to daycare and me and my husband juggle picking him up every day. And there are days where at five o'clock, I think, okay, we're good. I'll pick Lincoln as my son. I'll pick Lincoln up. And then 10 minutes later, God bless my husband. I'll call him and say, oh my goodness, you won't believe <laughs> like this news just broke. And now I'm on at six, seven and eight. And right. luckily he is a very patient, understanding person. And, yeah. you know, we started, we actually met right after I moved to Washington to cover the Trump administration. So as he puts it, he knows what he signed up for because the past uh, four years have been ridiculous and I never know what my schedule is, but it's a lot of juggling. 
And the, the great thing about working at CNN is some days are insane. Some days I go into the office. There have been days where I, I've gone into the office at 5 a.m., been on air at 6 and 7, had some, quote, downtime until 9. Then I've been live every hour writing wow. a story that will air on Wolf Blitzer's show. And then maybe I'll be on Anderson Cooper. And that's a, that is a long day when you're on air oh. and trying to keep, keep all these developments the straight. Yeah. But the good news is on the flip side, there are other days where the focus is on the State Department or on an overseas trip from the president. And then I get a little bit of downtime where I'm able to work the phones and catch up with sources I haven't spoken with and work on longer term stories. So you never know what the day is going to bring, which is a little bit frustrating, but you do. It does ebb and flow. But you should not have to do your own hair and makeup. That's just oh, not right. No. <laughs> yeah, Mike and I don't. Mike and I have uh, hair and makeup provided by the podcast. <laughs> the podcast. We have a, we have a clause in our contract. They've got to do our hair and makeup for us. But, but and it I looks do, great. Guys. I suspect Jessica that you're going to be very busy in the next year or so, based upon well, what ha is happening right now. The great mm -hmm. thing is that I got thrown into this four years ago. And I'll tell you, my stress levels were through the roof because this is a funny story. I was working in New York City at the CNN Bureau there where I would cover crime and justice, but I wasn't in Washington. And then on a Friday morning, my boss in New York called me in her office. It was March 2017. And she said, hey, what are you doing for like the next few months? And I said, uh, well, like, I got my sister's wedding coming up, but that, I don't have a lot of plans, you know, because you kind of sell your soul in a way yeah. to the network. <laughs> And she said, great, pack your bags, go to Washington, and you're going to work out of there for a while. And I said, okay, where do I live? And she goes, anywhere you want. You can <laughs> stay, stay at a hotel, whatever you want. And, <laughs> and how long will I be there? I, I don't know. Well, here we are. Four years later, I am still here. And um, <laughs> it is, I tell you, the stress at the beginning of the Trump administration for someone like me who had never reported in Washington before and didn't, didn't maybe totally understand it, didn't appreciate how quickly things moved. And then with Trump, it was just a whole other beast of developments literally by the second and by tweet. I remember getting called, I got sent down there two days after Trump had tweeted that the o Obama had wiretapped him, had, had <laughs> you know, wiretapped Trump Tower. Yeah. And literally in the, in the days following, they would call me up in my office and say, Trump just tweeted, get on air and tell us what he means. And I would say, <laughs> I don't know what he means. So it was it was quite a learning experience and it was stressed to the max. But the good thing is, you know, John, to your point, things are going to be busy. But I think all of us are battle tested here in Washington and we are used to the breakneck pace. So uh, it won't be any different than we've seen in the past four years. I, I think the next thing we're going to be hearing about is or you're going to be working on potentially is what exposure do President Trump and his family members and have yeah. now that they're no longer in office. And we're, we're already seeing that. The we may need to attorney... get you back on down the road, Jeff. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the next, you know, the district attorney in Manhattan is, has been trying yes. like heck to get his right. uh, tax returns and they've been working on that investigation. So we're probably going to see some some charges potentially against the former president and his family. And that'll, yeah, that'll be a yeah. big story too. Well, Jessica, 
the reason you started with three months and you're still there four years later is because you're a wonderful newscaster. You really oh, are. And I want to thank, thank you. you so much for coming on our program. It's really, it's just been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, we hope to have you back, but we do appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join us. I'm sure all of our listeners will really enjoy hearing your perspectives on things. Yes, well, thank, thank you, you guys so much for having me and the Connecticut Trial Lawyers Association. And I just, I love Connecticut. It, it, it was my home. It, I, it's near and dear to my heart still. So I love everybody in Connecticut and it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org. 